Yeah, Mom? Oh, hey there, AP World History. Didn't see you there. It's Travis here again, and we're back with part three of industrialization. So sit back and enjoy the ride. Instead of a mercantile exchange where things are just being taken out of Latin America, the same type of goods are being exported, but they're getting a little bit in return. It's more of a trade than anything else there. All right, and we'll talk about how that goes in a little bit. So these economies go through a growth, a, a growing process here. Off the coastal areas, we're going to see huge amount of uh, urbanization because we know Europe is getting overpopulated. A lot of people in the 1800s are migrating away from Europe, coming over into North America. You know, the United States is a huge immigration time uh, from Germany, from Ireland, from all these different places, from Italy. And the same is true down here on the Latin American coast. These cities are getting huge. You know, some of the biggest cities now down, are down there on the Latin American coast there. People coming, looking for jobs, some factories are going to start to pop up in some of these areas, so there is a limited industrialization, but it's really only confined to these cities. It doesn't get taken anywhere else. Okay, so uh, we start to see this kind of stuff moving in, promise of land, promise of jobs, a lot of immigration coming in. And we're going to start to see a stratification of the societies somewhat like it's the others in the Atlantic world. There is going to be a development of a middle class, of this bourgeoisie type class, and those things. All right? In the cities, we are going to have somewhat of a union movement, strikes, and those kind of things. We're not really going to have as big of a socialist presence as what we're going to see in Europe. In the Americas, socialism doesn't really pick up. In Latin America, because there's not really a huge percentage that are workers, outside of the urban areas especially. And in the United States, just because it's thwarted, I guess, by the bourgeoisie class. And they've successfully equated that with un-American activities, which is a success of the bourgeoisie class there. All right? Um, so we're not really going to see socialism with a big presence here in Latin America either. But... One thing that we're going to see, there's a whole different social dynamic going into the 20th century. We're really going to start to see this happening. One of the big events here is the Mexican Revolution. And we're going to see a different one. This is not the same one as in the early 1800s. We are going to see peasants really involved here, middle class reformers that are starting to grow and want to get away from this military dictatorship type mentality. So we're going to see the middle class and the peasants working to overthrow the government there. And we're going to see a lot of fighting that kind of stuff. And by 1917, we have a new constitution. All right, And this makes a lot of changes here. Because in Mexico, things like land reform, the Catholic Church with all these missions and those kind of things, has been the largest landowners in Mexico and really all Latin America for hundreds of years at this time. Well, now this is available. We're going to see some redistribution to the peasants, some get seized by this new government. But this new constitution looks pretty liberal. 
you know, universal male suffrage, um, which by 1917, I guess, is a pretty normal thing. That's not extremely liberal. Um, redistribution of land, all that kind of stuff. That's a big change here in Mexico. All right, so this, this is a pretty big event. Yes, sir? What uh, government did they have in Mexico at the time? It was one of those Cadillo ruler military dictatorship type things. Okay. I guess we want to call it absolutist, maybe. Was this like forced More of a on dictatorship, them? though. What? Was the constitution like forced on them, or was it like an agreement? Forced on who? The Mexican people. Well, they're the ones that just revolted. Oh, they so won their revolution, they created a constitution. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, again, industrialization. And this is kind of a list of things that we've already talked about. But we don't really see the Industrial Revolution touching Latin America much. Very small scale if it is. And mainly because, economically speaking, the powerful people are the people that own land. Agriculture is always going to be kind of the default of these Latin American countries during this 18 and turn of the 20th, uh, 20th, sorry, 19th century and turn of the 20th century here. And that's going to be how they find themselves in the Atlantic economy. All right, so what this opens itself up to, there's a lot of interest in these goods. So North American, I guess United States, uh, businesses, corporations, Western European businesses and corporations are going to take interest in these areas. They're going to acquire land, acquire all kinds of different things so that they can start to dominate some of the agricultural goods coming out here, whether it's bananas, whether it's coffee, whether it's sugar. All of these are still pretty big cash crops. And we're going to start to see, even though these are technically politically free countries, we're going to see this new economic form of colonialism that's going to come in to where the American businesses or Western European businesses, whoever comes in and sets up a business, they're going to establish parts of their production and businesses down in the country so that they're not having to trade with these countries for any kind of exports. They're able to just extract it again. So it's an economic form of colonialism as opposed to a political form of colonialism, a new type of mercantilism. So even these agricultural goods, the nations aren't really prospering off of those like they used to or could have. That's going to be the big thing that we see here, right? Now, let's go ahead and talk about Russia here. Oh, yeah. All right, so Russia. And I guess let's, let's get into some context of Russia here, too. But we're not going to get too much into the revolution because really the big Russian revolution is Unit 6. So we'll save that for later on. But with Russia, Russia is a little bit different situation. It is a European nation. It's kind of part of an Asian nation as well here. But Russia is different than what we're going to see with the Western European nations. What makes it so different? Somebody tell me. And we can kind of just start listing some stuff here. Brainstorming here. But what do you think? Give me some examples of Russia being different than Western Europe. And there's one key thing. There's one key difference, really. What do you think, Vinny? Fur trade. Fur trade, yeah. But, you know, France had the fur trade and those kind of things, too. So that's not unique to Russia. Trevor? Uh, 
Siberia. Okay, Siberia and the vastness and the size of Russia, for sure. Yeah? Maybe they've kind of got rid of most of the Mongolian influence. Peter the Great really kind of waged war on that whole thing, didn't he? So we're getting away from the Mongolian viewpoint. They do have a lot of access to Central Asia. The Mongols are long gone, but there's still some of that incorporated into the Mongolian realm. But for the most part, Russia has Europeanized itself through the efforts of Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, those kind of people. All right? They're what do you think? They're Eastern Orthodox. Okay, so there's a little different religion there. But when you get to some of the Balkans and Eastern Europe, you're going to see an Orthodox religion there too. So socially speaking, let's get to the realm of social and society and social classes. What's different about Russia than like a France or an England or Germany even? Yeah. Yeah, but you know, in 1870, the new German Empire that's created has a Kaiser, which is the same type of thing. It's a Kaiser who is still very absolutist in nature. So, you know, you're, you're, absolutism hasn't disappeared in Europe by far, I guess. Austria Hungary still has the Habsburgs that are ruling there. So, yeah, and that's even more political. Social, though, think social. What does Russia have that Western Europe doesn't really have anymore? Explain to me about the boyer class, which that's a nobility class, and every country has nobility. But what's unique about the boyers that's different than the, the junkers in Germany, or the nobles in France, or the Magyars in Austria? Okay, that's true. The boys are the most powerful aristocratic class in Europe. You can make that argument. But how does their power show up? What is their power over? And they have a lot of feudal society. And what are those guys called that are the little guys that work the land? Well, peasants are a Western European thing. In Russia, they're still called what? Serfs. Serfs, right? And serfdom, and this institution of the robot. Remember, the, we talked about the robot there. That institution is still very much alive in Russia going into the, and really all the way to the mid-1800s. All right? Everywhere else, pretty much in Europe, had got rid of that. So, Russia... In fact, Russia's tightened down even harder in the 1700s on their serfs. So that's really going to put Russia in a different situation because Russia, this boyer nobility class, they are super powerful, super influential. And when you talk about a movement like industrialization, that's an urban movement. And the boyers are really only going to stand to lose in that situation, right? So they're going to try to block that at all costs. Now, what else do we not have in Russia that Western European countries have? I know these are vague questions in some cases, but what social class are we missing? Why? 
Yeah. But what's a different economic situation in Russia than what the Western Europeans have? I guess let's put it this way. What colonies does Russia have? Exactly. None, right? Uh, Alaska, I guess, later on. But they're not really running a mercantile empire out of Alaska, right? So, Russia has not really ever developed this bourgeoisie merchant marine class that has a good amount of wealth, a good amount of power, and a good amount of influence that the Western European bourgeoisie class has. So in Russia, it really is just the czar, boyars, peasants, serfs, my bad, serfs. So it's very clear and it's very simple, all right? So, and when you think about the movers and the shakers of the 1800s, the people that led these revolutions and the people that started industry and all these kind of things, it's that bourgeoisie class. They're the movers and the shakers. They're the ones that call for change and all this kind of stuff. That doesn't exist in Russia, therefore we don't see change in Russia, all right? So, that's the situation. You have the most absolute of the monarchs, which there are others, like we said, Kaiser Wilhelm I in Germany and uh, the Habsburgers of Franz Joseph in Austria, those guys. But they don't have as much absolute power as what Tsar Nicholas I and Tsar Nicholas II going into the 20th century are going to have, all right? And because even in Germany, you've got a Kaiser, but you also have a Reichstag that's there that's like a Congress. And you have the dual monarchy with the different groups and those kind of things, the Ausgleich in Austria-Hungary. So there's nothing like that here in Russia. Absolute power is the most conservative of the governments that we have, all right? And we still have serfdom until 1861. All right. Now, during this time, we're going to see Alexander II come into play, and Alexander II is going to abolish serfdom. All right. We can get rid of. We know about Peter and uh, Catherine. We don't have to go through much of that. But Alexander II is going to abolish serfdom, which is a big sweeping change in Russia, because he realizes that Russia's behind. They get whipped up on in the Crimean War by the Western powers and. They pretty much say, we've got to make some changes. So they abolish serfdom, which does a couple of different things. One, it gets rid of that social system that's out of date, that's, you know, Western European countries got rid of a long time ago. But what happens to these people if these serfs are working the land and they're tied, they're bound to the land, they can't really ever leave it? They belong to this family. They work the land pretty much as slaves. Now they don't have to do that. So they're free to leave. What, where do they go now? Some stay and work the land for money. But others, where are they going to go? Cities. We're going to start to see some cities develop urbanization stuff. So we're going to see the same effect here with land reforms of abolishing the robot that we saw with land reforms in England with the enclosure movement. Now, the reforms themselves are a little bit different, but the results are the same. We start to see peasants in England and serfs in Russia that are not working the land anymore, and they're going to move to these other areas to find other jobs and other kind of things. So this frees Russia up to start doing some other things. 
than just farming, just agriculture, all right? So after a couple of decades of this, and this is a painful process, like I said, just getting rid of something like serfdom doesn't fix economic issues immediately. Whether these serfs go through a pretty rough time of not having jobs, relocating their families, and all this kind of stuff. But by the 1890s, Russia, kind of mandated by the state, by the government, starts encouraging industrial growth, putting serfs to work, doing certain things, and starts making changes. Because remember, Russia doesn't have this bourgeoisie class that's going to start doing this on its own naturally. We have to create that class as the state. And that's the way Russia's always done, right? Ru changes have always come from above. Peter the Great used to make all these changes. We used to cut the beards off of people. We used to force westernization. Catherine the Great used to do the same thing. Now it's industrialization. It has to come from the state. So they start doing that in the 1890s. And they start being somewhat successful. By two, uh, the 20th century, Russia's in the top five, top four steel producers in the world. That's pretty good. That's pretty cool. They're starting to get involved in other textile industries and Industrialization is showing a little bit of promise in Russia, I guess, there. Really, this is a big one, too. And one of the reasons why their steel industry is getting big here is because they need a lot of steel to make their railroads. Well, railroads are a big focus for Russia. Why? What do we know about Russia? It's huge. It's huge. And if we want to connect it, we need better transportation. Particularly, who brought up Siberia earlier? Particularly, to cross Siberia. The Trans-Siberian Railroad becomes a major, massive government project because now we can get from one side of Russia all the way to the Pacific Coast to Europe on one railway. That's pretty cool. Whereas Siberia used to be a barren, cold wasteland, which it still is, but now you can cross that wasteland. All right? And that really brings Russia together, connects Russia there. Um, so Russia's on its way there to some industrialization. All right. Now, the outcomes of this, we start to see the emergence of an industrial society as opposed to a feudal society. They still have huge amounts of agriculture. We're not saying that's not the cornerstone of their uh, economy. But we're starting, we see a middle class that starts to pop up here, an urban class with workers, not nearly to the percentage of what we see in England. You know, England by this time is probably 40%, 50% of the, of the people are in this working class. Actually, yeah, probably in England, 50% of both. This is gonna be maybe by 1900, 10, 15% of the class of the society. But it's developing, all right? In the 1890s, 5% of the people. And then the middle class, we're gonna start to see maybe five to 8% of the people, that kind of stuff, all right? Factory workers, like I said, about 20, uh, about the 20th century, probably 10 to 15 percent. But in the 1890s, here about 5 percent. And this is all the stuff, the conditions that we think of in Western Europe. Very, very difficult. There is no socialist movement yet here. There's no protection for these workers. They are early in the stages of industrialization. So the growing pains of industry that the British were facing in 1800. That's what the Russians are facing in 1900. They're about 100 years behind. All right? So they still have all these terrible, harsh conditions and those kind of things. Well, we're going to start to see 
some social struggle that's existing here. Bourgeoisie class wanting what the bourgeoisie class wanted back in the, uh, 1800 in France, right? And a little bit more representation, tax breaks, all this kind of stuff that is 100 years old in Western Europe that's starting to come to the forefront in Eastern Europe because these are new classes here at the time. Uh, workers and all that kind of stuff with their um, getting education and unions and organizing and all of the stuff that is on the socialist agenda. And we're going to see a revolution that takes place. This is not the revolution, but a revolution in Russia in 1905, um, a much smaller scale revolution than what we see in 1917. But this is really in response to they just lost a war to Japan. Japan's industrialized at this point, and Russia's starting to take some territory over in East Asia, and Japan whips up on Russia pretty badly. And this is kind of pointing out that Russia's not there yet. And they, the Tsar loses a lot of his influence, and he has to, they get revolted, and they have to put it down. Now, the revolt is a small percentage of the population, so it doesn't have a lot of support. Some peasants get involved, but not many. It's pretty easily put down. But a result, what we're going to see kind of as a, re a result of this. Tsar Nicholas II says he's going to do all these things. We're going to create a constitution. We're going to create a legislative body that's called the Duma. He doesn't really do all that. He sends the Duma home about three different times. But he says he's going to do this so that at least the middle class is somewhat happy. But they're going to get frustrated because it doesn't happen. We'll talk more about that later on. All right? Um, some land reforms and that kind of stuff here. We're going to start to see other parties that form them. The Soviets are going to get organized. Where are the, the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks are going to start to come together here. We start to see talks of you know, the revolution later on. We're not going to get to that yet again. That's going to be the But the biggest thing is industrialization halts. It doesn't necessarily disappear. But the progress they've made in the last decade, or maybe decade and a half, it kind of stops. The uh, cities, St. Petersburg, Moscow, those are still doing the same thing they've done, but they're kind of falling behind in steel production. Places like Germany, Great Britain, the United States are still heavily dominating the industrial scene. We're not going to see full industrialization coast to coast in Russia until 1920s. That's still coming in the future, okay? So what I want us to do now, forget this bottom half, because we're not gonna, we're not gonna focus on that too much. But you're gonna get with a partner, you get with, yeah, no, just one partner, just a partner. Pick two of these countries, or two of these regions, Europe, particularly Western Europe there, North America, Latin America, and Russia. Compare any two of those list any similarities, any differences you can with the industrialization processes, all right? Differences in industrialization between any two of the following, all right? I want a thesis, and then I want some historical evidence. It doesn't have to be organized into a full thesis of three, but I want a thesis and some examples. We're gonna talk about this in just a second. I think that 10 minutes is enough time, so 10 minutes, go. Hey guys, 
Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Elrod's Educational Lectures. Unfortunately, I have some bad news. We will not have an episode tomorrow because students will be taking a DBQ essay in AP World History. Tune in next Monday to witness another episode of Elrod's Educational Lectures. Thank you.